I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which deconstructs genre and narrative and finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. The role of a writer within crime, I think, is really akin to a detective's role because it is about research, information, building that case up through evidence and then presenting it. From serial, which seem to herald the age of the podcast, to shows like My Favourite Murder, it isn't a surprise that true crime has made such a successful transition to audio. We've always loved whodunits and unsolved mysteries, tales of the Zodiac Killer, Charles Manson, a whole plethora of others who live on beyond their time. Of course, before podcasts, true crime stories were told and continue to be told through literature and film. Whether it's Truman Capote's In Cold Blood, or Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway's Bonnie and Clyde. So how is the genre evolving as it finds new homes on different platforms? And what can the genre teach writers about character and plot design? Here at Behind the Spine, we aim to inspire writers by examining real events that take place in the world around us. And that is the very essence of true crime. So who better to explore the narrative of true crime than former detective Mark Williams Thomas, now an investigative journalist best known for exposing Jimmy Savile as a paedophile in the documentary The Other Side of Jimmy Savile. He also presents the Netflix and ITV series The Investigator and hosts the Detective podcast. Chapter 1. A Morbid Curiosity With our unquenchable thirst for darkness through true or fictional crime stories, I wanted to explore why we keep coming back for more. It's as though there's a primal urge within us to experience fear, especially if we know a story is true. As Mark Williams Thomas explains, there's so much more to our fascination. We like to know what other people are doing, and it allows us to step out of our world into almost a fantasy world and try and understand why people become like they are. So I often use an analogy. A lot of us like to sit in a cafe window and stare outside and watch people go by. And as people watch go by, we think about what are that type of person like? What do they do? Where do they work? What's their family like? And it allows us at a snapshot to look into someone else's life. And I think by true crime programs and that genre, it allows the public in a safe way to delve into the fascination, which is the human mind. And there has been an explosion in the last few years, uh, not just on television, but in terms of books, podcasts, documentaries, everything. Um, You cannot turn on the television or any streaming service without coming across a huge amount of uh, content that relates to, to, to true crime. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, the true crime genre, I think particularly over the last probably six or seven years, has exploded. It's exploded both in terms of platforms so amazon netflix itunes it's all there now and of course through podcasts we've had some really big podcasts that have done very very well and now everybody seems to have that fascination with trying to be the next person who is the next podcast creator which can go global and the great thing of course through technology now is that whatever you create it has the ability if it's picked up by mainstream media to go worldwide and, and I think that means that even if it's a crime that years ago would have only been considered quite parochial within an area, it has now got the ability to be transported worldwide. So if a crime happens in Australia, we could know about it in the UK and vice versa. And I think what that does is it creates an international, a worldwide audience that are then interested in it. So you've got a 
much bigger reach. And I also think there are people out there who find this just quite fascinating from their normal day-to-day life. And I don't mean to this to upset anybody, but a lot of people have quite a mundane, nine-to-five, fairly boring life. And by lo- listening to something which is in oft- often quite unbelievable, it allows you in a safe way to be transported to another world. And it also, there's something of, of there's, the, there's certainly there's a voyeuristic element to it, but is there also, are we all secretly armchair detectives or mm. we want to be armchair detectives? Oh, absolutely. I think the amount of people that watch my crime, crime programs, they often contact me afterwards and say, well, have you done this? Have you thought about this? I think this happened. I think this person was responsible. So absolutely. People are fascinated by giving their view in terms of what happened. You know, we only need to see it in terms of what's going on in terms of the coronavirus. How many experts out there who think they know the answer and the right way to deal with it? And it's no different with crime. We have people out there who sit at home, watch something and think, oh, okay, this is what needs to happen. This is what you need to do. Um, And it's great. I think it's great because I do think as part of program makers that I am is I think it's really important to engage with the public it's really important for them to come on board and I think as part of that what we're learning as program makers is how do we get the public into the program making it's the democratization of content isn't it so you you actually get people who contact you after your program offering their potential solutions of the case Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, people will contact me with all kinds of different reasons. So they'll contact me sometimes to say they thought the program was fantastic. They like the detail in which I investigate crime. But they'll also say to me, have you thought about this? Yeah, I think this person is more responsible. So they'll come back with their theories. Only the other day, I had somebody who sent me this really, really lengthy email. They'd watched my series two of The Investigator and they'd come back with some theories in terms of what they thought had happened. And I love that. I think that's great because it's engaging with your viewers. Uh, But it also just goes to show how serious some people take the watching of programs. So they'll watch a program and, of course, they'll then try to see that as a reality and think, okay, so how do I make that uh, come real? And, of course, the advantages of the programs that I make is that they are real. You know, it's not like watching a drama on television where the script is made up. What you are watching when you watch my programs is a real life crime, real people affected by it. And very often in real time, trying to investigate, trying to open up those opportunities. And sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes we just end up hitting a brick wall. But my focus is always, if I hit a brick wall, I always look to try and find a way around it. It's extraordinary to reflect in a, in a world in which things happen so fast now and um, content can be brought to a market in an incredibly quick, cheap and often free way. It, it strikes me that investigative journalism like the type that, that you do, it seems it seems quite odd, doesn't it? It, does, it seems to go against the model because it's long form. It takes ages. It's expensive to, to put out. Do you, do you often feel that, that, that you are limited by what you can do because of the long form nature of investigative journalism? Oh, massively. I think investigative journalism now is probably at its worst possible time because it's it needs finances in order to do those investigations. If you go back 15, 20 years, 
investigative journalism was at its peak, you look at the likes of Roger Cook and some of those other individuals who were really at the forefront because money was given to them to go and do those investigations. Nowadays, newspapers have very little money. Broadcasters have very little money in order to put that money down on the table so investigations can be done. And let's be clear, in order to do a proper investigation, that takes months, sometimes years, to be able to open up new lines of inquiry. And as a result of the course, that is financially rich. You, you have to have the money to back it, back that. So I find my work harder and harder uh, in order to be able to get broadcasters, newspapers to back it and say, come on, let's do it. So what you are starting to see is far more in the crime genre of people who are just simply either cameras with so we see lots of police and other organizations where they've got cameras embedded with them because it's easy journalism and it enables you to show the picture of the crime that's great uh, but in terms of challenging the system in terms of opening up new opportunities for perhaps unsolved crimes which gets forgotten that is becoming harder and harder to do everybody has the ability to be a journalist because by and large nearly everyone now has a mobile phone so when crimes happen on the street, something is is going on, massive, perhaps there's been a bombing or some major incident, the public are there and, and can film that and it can go live within seconds. And that's fantastic. That's great. But of course, what it does do is it means that the news is, is in a very different way broadcast. We have 24-hour news now, which is unsanitized in many ways. It enables a lot of false information to be put out there. Whereas what we should be saying is that actually we still need to have the values of journalists. You know, I take my role really seriously is that when I, I consider myself as a journalist to be able to put out information out there, which I know is correct. I've back checked it. I've factually checked that that information is correct. And we're, what we are getting is now a huge amount of misinformation, false information. And because of the way the Internet works, that information can go worldwide in a matter of seconds. Yeah, there is a there is an apocryphal tale about social media doing its best work in the first five minutes of a major incident, and then it's worst in the twenty four hours after that because of that misinformation. It's very good at getting a message out there quickly. The extent to which that message is fact checked, is analysed, and is measured in terms of you know tone and, and balance and editorial point of view, um, that's kind of not you know we, we we can't have both. It seems if we want stuff out there very very quickly and if we want to be able to film things on our phones and put them out there we're going to have to put up with the fact that it comes out raw unfiltered and possibly misleading which which is a narrative in its own right yeah i think those are two two elements that don't marry up well at all because you've got as you say immediate information people want that news out there straight away but as a result of that, that news might be slanted in a certain way, and particularly if it's not just simply showing what's going on, but it also has some kind of communication voice that goes with that, with whatever narrative the individual wants to be able to see. And we've all been in situations where we've seen something, but actually what we've seen is very different to what's taken place because we are simply seeing a snapshot in time. And I think that as a result of that, we have seen major stories covered incorrectly, both by news outlets as well as by personal ind individuals. And my worry, of course, with that is that that information potentially has the ability to stay in the ether forever. Chapter two, 
detecting similarities. When we're creating our own stories, even in works of fiction, it's important to think about the perspectives of our characters, to see the world through their eyes, in order to understand how their circumstances and backgrounds might influence and affect the way they see the world. As Marx suggests, narrative isn't fixed, memory's an interesting thing, events that unfold are often remembered differently from person to person. For example, it's thought that 40% of Americans misremember where they were during 9-11. There are so many similarities between the work of a detective and an investigative journalist, and also a storyteller. So how closely does each feel match up when piecing together their narratives? I think the work of an investigative journalist, the work of a journalist, at times is very similar to the work of a detective, of a police officer. Ultimately, we're out there trying to gather information. We're then sifting through that information to find what of it is of any evidential value and then building our case. And then once we've built our case, presenting it in a fashion which is able to be consumed by our audience, whether that be a jury or whether that be individual members of the public. So the similarities are absolutely there. What we've struggled with, I think, over the years is to enable both the role of a journalist and the role of the police officer to be seen quite similar. I think for a long time, a journalist was seen as a, and I don't want to put estate agents down, but you know that idea of these are the individuals we don't particularly like because they make stuff up and they lie and they don't tell the truth. Well, of course there are journalists that do that, but there are also police officers that do that. They are in the minority. The majority of those people out there do a really, really good job. And I think the role of a writer within crime, both in terms of fictional and factual as far as writing the current stories, I think is really akin to a detective's role because it is about research, information, building that case up through evidence and then presenting it. If we think about the extent to which figures can hide in plain sight, and I'm thinking particularly about um, things that have happened recently, such as uh, the accusations against people like Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein, and indeed your own work um, with Jimmy Savile. Is there a notion that people can get away with things because they are in the public eye? And do you think it naturally takes longer for the truth to come out because they can hide in plain sight? Uh, totally. I think one of the biggest problems that we have as a society is, of course, we put people up on pillars. We enable people to be fairly untouchable. And we do that because when they get to a certain stage, they have what's in place around them as their gatekeepers, individuals that prevent you from being able to gain access to them. And of course, those individuals then control not only the information that comes in, but the information that goes out. And as a result of that, the higher the profile you've got, the harder it is for anybody to say or do anything that you are going to be believed. And we've had over the years media outlets who, of course, have been in the pocket of individuals. And as a result of that, the stories that should have been broadcast were never broadcast. You only need to look in terms of Max Clifford and the control that Max Clifford had around the media. And I think some of that is replicated in Harvey Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein was an incredibly powerful man. And as a result of that, became pretty untouchable. The, the, the good thing is, and I think following the exposure of Jimmy Savile, I think some of that changed. I think there was a massive tidal change in terms of the uh, authorities 
listening to people who perhaps previously would not have been listened to. So that is a very positive thing. Are there still people out there who are untouchable? Absolutely. There are individuals out there who will never, ever be touched until such time as something massive occurs or they or their luck runs out. And I always say this to anybody and, and often talk about it, is that I believe that everybody's time comes at some stage. And I hope that that is whilst they're still alive. Of course, we weren't able to do it with Savile. We had to do it whilst he was dead, after he was dead. But his time did come. And I believe in that. I think we have to have some kind of element of belief, some faith, some trust, because after all, otherwise, this could be a pretty depressing world we live in. And, and it, presumably that works both ways as well. They can, you know, that can you know, reputationally, you could, your reputation could be posthumously enhanced by the discovery of the truth. So it's it's really a discovery about the truth, whether that means that you were guilty of something or innocent of something, your death shouldn't be the end. Um, is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think truth's a really interesting thing because people often say to me, I need to get to the bottom of the truth. Well, one person's truth can be very different to somebody else's truth. So what I say is it's always about trying to find out what happened, because what happened can only be one single narrative. So when somebody, for example, comes in and makes an allegation to the police, what the police need to be doing is to establish what took place, not look to try and substantiate their allegation. So in the same way as when someone comes in and makes an allegation, what we need to do is take that, look at it, and then build evidence both for and against and there are individuals out there, and we've seen it in terms of certainly the British media, uh, individuals, famous people who have been pulled through the coals because a single person's come forward, made an allegation. It's then got into the public domain through the media. Uh, and of course, their life has been destroyed. And we saw that with the fantasist Carl Beach, who has an awful lot to answer for. But then so do the authorities. You know, his story and his some of the information he gave, you know, I was talking to the Metropolitan Police in the very early days and telling them his story is not worthwhile. It doesn't stand up to scrutiny, yet they continued with it. They pursued it when lots of people said exactly the same. And I think the authorities have a duty to to act in an appropriate way. And I think it's the pendulum. I often refer to a pendulum. So we are very poor I think as a, as a world, but certainly in the UK where I operate, to ever have the pendulum sit in the middle. So when some allegation is made, the pendulum will swing one way. And of course, after Jimmy Savile, the pendulum swung in such a way that it was really after those people to whom any allegations were made against. What we then needed to do was bring that pendulum back to the middle and use the same integrity investigative skills that we would apply in the normal day-to-day -day, which is to look at every element of it and not just simply believe the allegation that's being made chapter three the victim's story it's interesting to reflect on the narrative of truth and what the truth really means for different people but also how truth and reality can be skewed based on the result you want to hear using that in storytelling and allowing various degrees of truth to be juxtaposed with reality allows a reader to get closer to the personalities you fleshed out in your characters in a meaningful way. And also, touching on what Mark says about the evolution of crime, it's impossible to avoid discussing the coronavirus during this, or indeed seemingly any other conversation. That's an interesting point in itself, how a major event can dominate the way we think and reflect on daily life. But perhaps as we begin to view many aspects of life differently, this pandemic may also change our perceptions of crime as we look back on how crimes were being committed during the wide-scale lockdown. 
Yeah, I think crime evolves and crime evolves because offenders see the opportunities that they have to change in the same way as businesses have to accommodate to their clientele criminals have to do the same. So for example, the rate of domestic burglaries has massively gone down. And that's quite simply because people are at home. But commercial premises burglaries have certainly stayed or if not increased. We've had a massive increase in domestic abuse. And that domestic abuse is, is quite simply because people are living with each other all the time, unable to get out to the degree that they're used to. We've also had an increase in child abuse offences. So these are people who are going online viewing child abuse images because they don't have the opportunity to go to work and the, go to the pub and the other releases that would take them away from being in front of a computer and be, being on the internet. And we've also looked in terms of some of the broader elements of crime. So drugs, for example, I think it's probably clear now that, that drug drug suppliers, rather than supplying it openly in parks or at side of the streets, they will have clicked onto this. And I would think many drug suppliers are now using mopeds and doing door-to-door -door deliveries because delivery drivers are not being stopped. They're being allowed to go back and forth. They're going up and down the country delivering. What better? Underneath the police's nose is to get on a motorbike and go and do your delivery drops right to the door. So what on one hand looks as if it were um, an essential delivery of food could actually be something completely different. Absolutely. Wrap it up in a parcel and put it on the front doorstep. Give it to the people. Nobody's going to know. Certainly nobody's checking that at all. I had a parcel delivered today. Postman puts it on the front doorstep, stands away and off you go. And the delivery driver can do exactly the same. Yeah, it's fascinating. I wonder whether there will be an investigation, you know, once the coronavirus has hopefully passed and things get back to some form of normality as to what was happening from a criminality perspective during uh, the lockdown. I think it would be interesting because it may change our perceptions of crime and how crime actually occurs. Absolutely. I think we're quite poor sometimes as far as re-evaluating and assessing how criminals change. I think there's often a way that we learn, we miss the learning opportunities by not speaking to criminals. So for example, if you are a burglar, what a one good thing to talk to a burglar about is how they commit their crime. So if they were committing their crimes in one certain area, and by and large, burglars wouldn't answer this question. But if you got them to a position where they would say, well, the reason I picked on this house, the reason I went to this street, the reason I did that might educate the police in terms of safeguarding premises better. And I think we should use that much more for other types of crimes. What we want to do is understand not only, of course, the crime they've committed, but what made them choose that victim? Because what we need to do is as police is actually become much more victim focused because if we were able to be more victim focused we could reduce crime and let me explain that in a very simplistic way so if you have certain members of society who are more likely to be victims than others and they do exist so children prostitutes the elderly those that, are, that uh, are homosexuals, lesbians, there are certain pockets of communities which are more vulnerable. If we were able to victim, look at those from a victimology point of view and reduce the likelihood of them being victims, i.e. keep them away from certain areas, look to see when they're most likely to be targeted, we would reduce crime. 
Yes, and that everything that you said there, I could think of you know um, 101 examples of 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 why those particular parts of society might be uh, might be vulnerable. So it's interesting that we haven't done that. Is there a, is there a trend towards um, looking at victimology? I, I think we're moving better towards it. I think during the 15, 20 years ago, when we should have been looking at this, police forces were very reluctant to enter into any relationships with academical establishments. There was the police and academia, and they were two totally separate entities. It has got better, certainly over the last 10 years, where more academics have become involved in doing research studies around types of crime. Um, so I think that has improved. I still think we need to do an awful lot more. The problem with policing is that by and large policing is reactive, not proactive. So we simply react to crimes that have taken place. Whereas what we need to do is balance that through proactivity. Proactivity, if done right, not only stops crimes from occurring, but enables you to understand the potential reason why crimes do occur. But it's resource intensive and it's not backed up by statistical figures. So if you are proactive, it's very difficult to quantify what crimes you have stopped Whereas, of course, if you're reactive, you have a you have a clear up rate in relation to that crime that's occurred. And of course, clear up rates enable police forces to be better resourced and funded and get better publicity. So the whole process in terms of reactive and proactive policing, I think, needs to be relooked at. One final question, if I may, Mark, um, if I think about the books that sit on my desk in terms of um, research material that I reach for as a writer, there are two that, that leap to mind. One is the Crime Writer's Guide to Police Procedure, and the other is a very large book, which is about um, how forensics work uh, and what writers need to bear in mind. Are there any mistakes that you see either in literature, film or television where the portrayal of detective work or indeed of investigative journalism just really, really just doesn't ring true? Any, anything that you can um, think of that, that writers that would be listening should uh, should be aware of? Yeah, I mean, I for years when I left the police service, I went and worked for a number of the major broadcasters advising on police dramas. So I did Wake the Dead, Wire in the Blood, Inspector Lindley's Mysteries. So at one stage, I did probably all of those across uh, the main broadcasters. And I think one of the things I always used to say to writers is it has to be believable. And it has to be believable so that the public can understand what's going on. And it also has to be a result. The public wants a result at the end of the day, because what we want to do as a public is watch something to which we have some trust and faith and belief in the very authorities that are out there to protect us. So there are some programs that work really well in terms of investigating perhaps corruption. But what they always do is give you an end result. And those are the ones that are successful. You look at the likes of Line of Duty. Yes, it deals with corruption within the police service. But what it does is it deals with a force that is there to try and stop that or deal with it having taken place. So there's a positive outcome. When you look at crimes on televisions through dramas, you see a result at the end because that public wants that to happen. It is very difficult for people to put programs out when there is no result because that's not what the public want and of course those manuals the, the documents that you talk about are very useful I think for any crime writers I think another very useful manual to to look at is the uh, senior investigators murder manual 
I think that's a very good document because that sets out in terms of how to investigate a, a murder. And of course, police forces are learning all the time. There is a consistent reviewing in terms of murder investigations now. Can we learn lessons? Can we not make the same mistakes as we've made before? I, Crime writers are, by and large, really good. I do sometimes watch programmes and think, you've made some fatal mistakes. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that a crime writer makes is to make it too complicated and to try to be too clever. If you make too many twists, if you make things in there that become slightly unbelievable, you will lose the public. And I, I'll give one specific example. So Liar, the first series of Liar was brilliant. The second series of Liar, I've really struggled with, and I've struggled with it because the writer themselves have tried to make it too complicated. What you can't do is put in scenes that become unbelievable, which is, for example, a man falls off a boat, he has a knife in his hand, and he manages to cut it, to cut himself out of that. So we need to make them believable because otherwise the public will lose interest in what they're watching or reading. Mark, that's wonderful. Thank you very much for your time. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Brilliant. Thank you, Mark. Conclusion. A massive thank you then to Mark Williams-Thomas for joining me on the podcast. And to recap, what have we learned? Our fascination with true crime probably stems from a list of innate desires. We like to get a glimpse into the lives of the world's darkest people, however frightening. We enjoy that foray into a fantasy world that's so intrinsically linked with reality just to step out of the comforts of mundane, everyday life for a second. Research, evidence, building up a case. These are the bedrock of the work of a detective, but so too are they essential when crafting a compelling, interesting, believable story. It's clear the work of a detective, an investigative journalist and a writer all follow very similar paths, and each can learn from the other. Truth differs from person to person, where you can experiment is by juxtaposing multiple truths with the reality of what actually happened, the events as they unfolded without the prejudice of emotion. And just as I offer you one now, when telling a crime story, true or otherwise, the public, the reader, the viewer, they want results, a conclusion. That sense of closure is important. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. And if you'd like to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine. New episodes are released weekly. Please like us and review us on Apple Podcasts, it really does help. Goodbye for now, stay safe, and keep writing. Hold up. 